Good morning. Well, it's nice to see all of you. If you have a Bible, would you please join me in Matthew 16? If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one into your hands. Raise it high and we'll get one to you. While you're turning to Matthew 16, three announcements. Number one, second service, if you're able to stay, and I would encourage you to do so. Uh, Pastor Steve is finishing his series on Christian biographies, Christians you ought to know, and he will be speaking on the life of DMLJ. That's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones this afternoon, and so I'd encourage you to come and, and listen to that. I'm very excited to announce that next Sunday, is that right, Scott? Yes. Next Sunday, Elder Scott Porter and Jeff Newman will be co-teaching a class, adult Sunday school class during second service called How to Grow, and I would encourage you to go to that, and I am very encouraged that they're teaching that. And then lastly, uh, plug for this coming Wednesdays. So Wednesday nights are starting back up again. I'll be teaching two classes. The first one involves a video. It's called Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer, People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. And so that defines all of us. So if that interests you, uh, once you come out for that, and then following that class will be one on text and canon, which looks at um, how the Bible came to be and how the Bible is, we can trust our lives with it and how it's transmitted to us and more, how the doctrine of scripture fits the Bible together and more and more and more. So if you want to learn more about the Bible and why you can trust your life with it, come to that class. Well, we are in Matthew 16. I want to draw your attention to verse 13. I'm going to read verses 13 to 20 to set the context before us. Pray, and we'll jump right into the word. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Oh, Father, we are grateful that now on this side of the cross, an empty tomb that no longer is it a secret that Jesus is the Christ, but we are to proclaim this good news from the rooftops that the promised and long-awaited Savior ever since Adam and Eve fell has come. His name is Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He has lived our life for us, died on the cross for our sins, and risen from the grave. He is the King of all creation and will return soon. This is what it means that he's the Christ. We proclaim that, Lord. 
But today, as we look to your word and look to you in it, we pray that you'd help us, in particular, understand what the church is. Jesus, we don't want to invent and make up ideas about the church that aren't biblical. We want to think the way that you think about the local church. We want to live and respond to the local church the way that you want us to. And so I pray this morning that we as a church family, friends who are visiting, and maybe friends who don't yet know you, that you would accomplish your purpose in all of our lives to save the lost, comfort the hurting, to strengthen the weak, and for all of us to gain your heart and mind on a local church. So to that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. So we are now this morning in, in week number two of this uh, series that we're in. We've paused the Gospel of John, and for the next number of weeks, we're going to be in a series called Ecclesia, Features of a Faithful Church. And that word, Ecclesia, is the Greek word behind the English word in our Bibles, church, or gathering, or assembly. And the subtitle this morning is Built and Bound by the Gospel. One of the things to set up this series and this morning of what we're trying to do here, as we look to God's Word, is the Bible makes clear, and church history makes clear, that there's such a thing as true churches and false churches. And a true church and a, a, a false church become one or the other in their relationship to Jesus Christ and his gospel. We also, I mentioned last time, that churches, true churches, can exist on a spectrum of health, from healthy to sick. And for a church to be moving towards health or sickness depends on the church's attentiveness and faithfulness to what a church is. You can think of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where Jesus commends good things in those seven churches, but also provides correction for sins and folly and errors in those churches. Jesus even threatens that if those churches don't correct their sins, their sicknesses, as it were, they're inattentive to his word, if they don't correct it, that Jesus will remove their lampstand. So being a healthy church is important. Even defining what health is, is important. Do we get to determine what a healthy church is? Or does Jesus lay it out in his word? He lays it out in his word. That's part of our quest in this long series that we'll be in of what is a healthy church. But since a church is made up of people, every person in the church is a contributor to moving a church towards greater degrees of health or greater degrees of sickness. And I don't think most believers think that way about their relationship with the local church. Functionally in America, church is treated as a spectator sport. You come if you feel like it. Perhaps you're entertained or not. Sermon is too long, usually. And then you leave, and then you critique about what you like or dislike about church. And church becomes a show. We turn it into a consumeristic endeavor that is absolutely not what Jesus has in mind. And that attitude con contributes to sickness of churches. So when I say tr churches can be true or false, healthy or sick, 
It means that if you are a Christian, you, as a member of FCF and a tender of FCF, or someone who's visiting from out of town and is part of another church from out of town, you are, all of us, as Christians, are a contributor and impact the health of this church for the sake of Christ. So it's important. It's important to know what the church is. And if you're not a Christian, one thing that may surprise you or shock you is that what the Bible teaches about the local church is one of the least understood and studied doctrines of the Bible in the last 150 years. And so um, it's something that gets assumed and pragmatism takes place and more. So we want to have Christ's mind about what the church is. So our aim in this series, Ecclesia, features of a faithful church, is not to say all there's possibly to say about what a healthy local church is, but to land on some big rocks and put those in place to build off of in the future. Our aim in this series is to embrace a biblical understanding of who and what the church is, not just in the abstract, but personally, since to be a Christian is to be vitally committed participant in the life of a local church. Our task as believers is to be found faithful by our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that we need to know what Jesus intends for us to be faithful as a church corporately and as individuals part of the church. Now, last week, we studied Luke twenty-two twenty, the Last Supper. And we saw the meaning and significance of Jesus' profound words when he broke bread and then he gave the cup and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And last time we sought to locate where the church falls in God's plan of redemptive history. And we saw that, that the church in Christ, as the people of the new covenant, that we are the purpose and climax of redemptive history. That is foundation to our understanding of the church. So now we can build on that and frame out on this solid foundation. So for the next weeks, we're going to be in Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and Matthew 28. Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and Matthew 28. And we're going to be focusing on that strange phrase that Jesus used when he spoke to Peter saying, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And what in the world does that mean? So we're continuing to build on the foundation. So if you're taking notes, and you should, here's the outline for this morning. Number one, to be the church is to profess the gospel. And that's Matthew 16, verses 13 to 16. Number two, Jesus builds his church with the gospel, and hell will not prevail against it. That'll be verses 17 and 18. And then we'll close with four ways to respond. We actually won't get into the keys of the kingdom, Lord willing, until next week. But we can't overlook this important beginning of understanding what a church is. Well, number one, to be the church is to profess the gospel. Look again with me at verses 13 and 16. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say you are John the Baptist. Some say you are Elijah. 
Others say you're Jeremiah, and others say you're another prophet. In verse 15, Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now this passage, and specifically um, the response that we have from Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, this is famously called in church history the Great Confession. We have the Great Commission in Matthew 28. This is the Great Confession. So, so Jesus is with the disciples. He, he asks, who do the crowds think Jesus is? They're trying to figure out his identity. Peter lists a few options. Then Jesus asks the disciples who they think Jesus is. And then again in verse 16, the great confession, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is, in this moment, Peter's great confession of the gospel. In the gospel accounts, as they're unfolding, right, we're in Matthew 16, this is the first person to get it, so to speak, even though he actually doesn't get it. But he gets it in part. And as he gets it in part, he's confessing the gospel. It's as if he's the first stone being laid in the foundation of this new temple being built that is the people of of Christ. And so Peter's confession of the gospel becomes our confession of the gospel. Peter's great confession becomes the standard great confession that anybody who claims to be a Christian is supposed to make. Now, as I said, at this point in redemptive history, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the disciples don't fully understand who Jesus is yet. It's going to take Jesus to die and rise from the grave, pour out his spirit, then they'll begin to really get it as they finish writing the Bible. They don't fully understand that Jesus is God in the flesh, truly God and truly man. They don't understand yet that Jesus will ratify the new covenant at the Last Supper. They don't understand yet that Jesus will will make the new covenant by atoning for their sins through dying on the cross. They don't understand yet that Jesus will take God's wrath in their place on their behalf. They don't understand yet that Jesus is going to rise from the grave. Jesus is not going to stay dead. He's going to rise from the grave for their justification. A big, beautiful Bible word that describes the right standing of being declared not guilty because Jesus shed his blood for us. They don't get that yet. They don't know yet that Jesus is going to then ascend into heaven and then pour out his Holy Spirit. They don't understand yet that when they believe they're going to be brought from death to life, they're going to be made a new creation in Christ. They're going to be adopted into God's family. They don't know that yet. They don't recognize they'll be in union with Christ. They don't recognize they'll be citizens of heaven. And they don't recognize that there'll be a kingdom of new covenant priests. And yet, all that and more is what's contained when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, I like to use that phrase, hyperlink text. If you click on that word Christ, which is Greek or Messiah in Hebrew, that 
unfolds you all back into the Old Testament and all the promises of really what I just summarized for us. Peter makes the great confession. All that and more is in that phrase, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, to be a Christian is to make and agree with this confession and all that it entails. Here in Matthew 16, Peter is the first person to make the great gospel confession, and Peter's rightly confessing who Jesus is and what Jesus will do. Who and what. Peter's confessing the right Jesus. Jesus is the son of the living God, that's verse 15, and Jesus is the son of man, which he says of himself in verse 13. And those also are pregnant with meaning. He gets the who right. He doesn't, he doesn't think Jesus is a different Jesus. And he gets the what of Jesus correct. By just simply saying the Christ, if you know your Bible well, you know how much meaning that is also pregnant with as well. So it matters when you make the great confession. If you confess the Mormon Jesus, or the Jehovah Witness Jesus, or the Islam Jesus, or the, or the New Age Jesus, you cannot be saved because those are false Jesuses who've done a false work. We're talking about the biblical Jesus. So you have to have the right Jesus doing the right thing, making the great confession. Consider Romans 10. Romans 10, 9, 10, and 11. Listen to this um, other summary of the great confession. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Praise God. We're saved by grace through faith and not through works. So to be saved from condemnation, to be rescued from God's wrath, requires our hearts to believe and embrace the truth, not a false truth, so to speak. Not a lie masquerading as the truth. What we believe matters. Precision matters to Christ. You have to get who Jesus is right and what Jesus did right. And we audibly confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. And confessing that Jesus is Lord is not merely saying that he's a really special king. To say Jesus is Lord is to claim that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh of the Old Testament. So it's not just a generic, yeah, he's a Lord, like a certain nobleman. It's declaring that he is Yahweh in the flesh. But he is the God-man, second person of the Trinity, king and creator of the cosmos, risen from the dead and reigning. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus saves sinners from God's wrath. He saves us 
from God's wrath against our sin to adopt us into God's family where he becomes our beloved father, the father does. Only the biblical Jesus and his biblical work saves. As I said earlier, false Jesuses can't save because false Jesuses only produce false gospels. They're not alternative options. So if you get Jesus' identity wrong or Jesus' work wrong, you cannot be saved. You do not need to go to seminary to be saved. You do not need to have the whole Bible memorized to be saved. But what I'm getting at here is that when we confess Jesus as Lord, you're confessing the Trinity. That's why someone's baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So someone who denies the Trinity and yet claims to be a Christian is not a Christian because it's a different God. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Consider also this summary of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. Now just pause for a moment. Remember how I said at the beginning that churches can be true churches and false churches, and churches can exist on a spectrum of health to sick, by which we define that as faithfulness to God's word. If there was ever a, by theological definition, jacked up church, it was the church at Corinth, riddled with sins. And Paul writes his letters to the Corinthians to address so many different sins that they engaged in. And here, towards the end of the book, in chapter 15, 1, notice the antidote that he is giving to the virus of their sin in this passage. Now I would remind you, this is verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, now what do you expect? He's speaking to Christians. So I wonder what you'd expect him to, to explain. Maybe some super deep theological truths? Well, kind of. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, progressive sanctification, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, just notice right here, he's preaching the gospel again to Christians. If in your mind you think that the Christian, is, or excuse me, that the gospel is only for non-Christians, and then when we believe the gospel, we move on to deeper and better and bigger truths, you have not understood the gospel. The gospel message of Jesus Christ saves and shapes believers of Jesus Christ. Saves and then shapes. So here's the Apostle Paul preaching to the church in Corinth, and he preaches the gospel to them as the antidote to all their sins. But what is the gospel, Paul? He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, which you stand, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance. So he's taking us to the heart of the gospel. There's more to say. There's matters of second importance. You could read Romans 1 to see additional features of the gospel. But here he's taking us to the heart of the gospel, verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ, there's that word again, that title, Christ, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Right? He fulfilled the Old Testament. 
He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, another name for Peter, then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, verse 8, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The heart of the gospel is the death of Jesus for our sins, Jesus' burial for three days, his resurrection three days later, and his appearances. Those are the matters of first importance. A gospel preached that does not contain the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sins is not the gospel. It must have these matters of first importance. Here's what we've done. Just pause for a second. We're looking in Matthew 16. Peter makes the great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I've argued that who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is central to the great confession. And we looked at Romans 10, 9, 10, and 11 about confessing with your mouth to be saved, saved by uh, faith, not works, through grace, that we see the matters of first importance. We see the same witness in Matthew and in Romans and Corinthians and across the whole Bible of who Jesus is. But here's what you can't miss in this passage. The gospel is the door key to the new covenant. The gospel that you confess and believe is the key to the door of the new covenant community of the kingdom of heaven that we spoke of last week. How do you become part of the church? You profess the gospel. If you are not a professor of the gospel, or if you claim a different Jesus, that there is no trinity, or that Jesus is a created being, or Jesus is one of many different types of gods, that is a false Jesus. You're not professing the biblical gospel. Friend, you are not saved. You must believe this biblical Jesus. But if you profess this gospel, this good news of God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, living, dying, and rising in our place for our sins, if you profess this gospel, you're welcomed as a born-again citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now here is where we reach what I believe is a pervasive error of modern Western Christianity. And this is now beginning to reach the intersection point of what I've said about healthy and sick churches and the gospel. We reach this pervasive error as this, is what I believe. Many Christians think that all that I've just said is where the gospel stops. You must believe, yes. You must confess, yes. You must renounce your sins, yes and amen. Believe in Jesus. And then we functionally think, at least many Christians do, that we then, once you confess the gospel and are saved, that we then go on our merry, individualistic, privatized way. That's where the gospel stops. We turn the gospel just into conversionism. If you can just walk the aisle, raise the hand, get the person to pray a prayer, you've done the job, that's it. Friends, this is not where the gospel ends. This is where the gospel begins. What do I mean? 
Many Christians wrongly think, this was a tradition that I was saved in when I was 21 and in college. Many Christians wrongly think their personal belief in the gospel is the sum and substance of Christianity and that the local church is an optional add-on. Let me say that again. Many Christians wrongly think that their personal belief in the gospel, the individualism, is the sum and substance of Christianity and that the local church is an optional add-on. The assumption, assumption, usually not intentional, it's an assumption, is that all Jesus wants from us is personal, privatized belief in the gospel. And that becomes the sum and substance of our Christianity. I, I just heard a pastor remark just this last week that for many Christians, to them the word church is simply plural for Christians. You can have a pod of dolphins, you can have a pride of lions, and you have a group of Christians and it's just called a church. And it doesn't mean anything beyond that other than, hey, look, we've all got together and so this is now church. If you just get more than two Christians together, it suddenly becomes church. A Christian may have a vague sense that they're now members of the universal church. What does that mean? Universal church is the language we use to describe all believers of all times, of all places, most of whom are in heaven, and then those of us who are still alive all around the globe right now, the universal church. But the universal church will never be assembled together until we're all in glory together. So the only way that we ever see the church and the main way that the Bible talks about the church is the local church, as in us right here, right now, and Mountain View, who we prayed for earlier this morning, etc. A Christian may have a vague sense that when they believe the gospel, they become members of the universal church, but think that, hey, I'm a Christian, and Mountain View's Christians, and Grace is Christians, and so I'm just going to be a bee pollinating a field and float around because we're all Christians in Jesus. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Praise God for our brothers and sisters in those gospel-preaching churches, and we want to extend the right hand of fellowship to them, but there's more that Jesus has in mind. Again, the assumption is the local church is optional, and usually a matter of preference. Does it pique my interest? Does it satisfy my tastes? Do I like the music? Do I like the sermons? Do I like the kids' ministry? And we use these other um, factors to measure what, what we think or how we evaluate a church. So how was church for you today? Well, the singing was so-and-so, the sermon was so-and-so. We, we tend to define church by our preferences. We tend to define church by our tastes. And we also want to find out, does it fit my conveniences? Oh, you want to go to church this morning? Nah, don't feel like it. Maybe you have something better to do. That's how we tend to treat and approach church. The question is, does Jesus want us to approach church based on our preferences does Jesus want us to evaluate church based on the music and kids' ministry and the sermons? Kind of. What does Jesus say in Matthew 16, the great confession does? Have you ever thought about that? 
What does Jesus say in Matthew 16, Peter's great confession does? What does Jesus intend his gospel to do? Yes, Jesus' gospel makes gospel people, but is that it? And that leads us then to the second point. Jesus builds his church and hell will not prevail. Look at verses 17 and 18. So that was a deep dive into the gospel, a deep dive into the great confession of the gospel. But now look at how Jesus responds to Peter's great confession. Verse 17. Jesus answered Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this, the great confession, to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And here it is. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, in verse 17, Jesus makes clear that Peter did not come up with the great confession based on his own hunches or experiences or intuitions or intellect. Jesus makes clear that Peter wasn't, well, Peter wasn't better at putting two and two together than others. Peter received what Peter said by divine revelation. The Father revealed it to him. So that means that the reality of Jesus' person and work of the great confession is only by divine revelation from the Father. Think John chapter 3, you must be born again. But did you hear it? Did you catch what Jesus ensures will happen with his gospel great confession? Did you catch what happens when you believe who Jesus is and you confess that? Did you catch if gospel confessors become great wanderers, detached from the people of God as an optional add-on to their faith? No. It's right there in verse 18. What happens when people profess the gospel? Verse 18, on this rock, I will build what? my church. Now, what is this rock? It is Peter's gospel profession. Yes, Jesus is speaking directly to Peter. The the use in this passage is singular. He's having a conversation with Peter while the guys listen on. No, Jesus is not establishing Peter as the first pope. Jesus is establishing the gospel as the builder of the church, Peter, being the first gospel professor, is the first stone laid in the temple of the church. That's what he means on, on this rock. It's what Paul will pick up in Ephesians 2, talking about how we're built on the foundation stones of the apostles and prophets. That's what's going on here. So no, Peter is not the Pope. Yes, he's talking to Peter, but not just Peter the man, it's Peter's profession of the gospel. Let's make this plain. Jesus is establishing the gospel as the builder of the church. And he's making a play on words because Peter means rock. Peter, as giving the first gospel confession, 
becomes a foundational stone. To what? Again, look at verse 18. On this rock. That's the great confession by Peter. I will build my church. This verse, Matthew 16, 18, and if you were to skip over and look at Matthew 18, 17, these two locations, Matthew 16 and 18, are the only two places in all the gospel accounts where the word church is used. Only three times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they three times are here in Matthew. The word church, Jesus says he's going to build his ecclesia. Jesus is going to build his ecclesia, how? With the gospel, with the great confession. The word church means assembly or gathering. That's what it means. So technically speaking, a church is the assembly of the great confessors. Every person who's part of Jesus' assembly is someone who has made the great confession. More on that next week. So to be the church, by definition, we are a gathering of gospel people. By definition. Now that makes sense, of course, if you remember last week, in keeping with what we saw last week, of the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, that only believers will be in the new covenant. And this is just an echo of that. To make the great confession unlike the Abrahamic covenant, unlike the Mosaic covenant that had unbelievers part of the covenant, part of what makes the new covenant new is we're all filled with the Spirit and we confess the gospel. So we have to recognize at this point in redemptive history, in the gospel accounts, Jesus is not saying all there is to say about the church. He's laying a foundation. Peter's the first stone. Jesus will later say all he has to say about the church, That'll be in the rest of the New Testament. But we can't miss this. Here's the point. Jesus does not use the gospel to save individuals with a privatized faith like sheep wandering around a countryside. Jesus uses the gospel to build his church. The gospel makes church people. And it doesn't make anything else. The gospel makes church people, new covenant church people. So no, the local church is not an optional add-on to the Christian life. The local church is central and essential to the Christian life. The local church is what Jesus builds with his gospel. And Jesus builds the church by adding more and more gospel people to it and then shaping gospel people with the gospel, as we read back with 1 Corinthians 15. Now you might say, wait a second, wait a second. It seems here as you're looking in your Bible, you might say to me, it seems here in Matthew 16 that Jesus is speaking of building the universal church. And I keep saying local church. And, and you think that he's referring to all believers of all times, of all places. So how can I claim the local church is intended to be central and essential to the Christian life? I am glad that you asked that. Thank you. You teed it up for me perfectly. The answer is in Matthew 18. 
Matthew 18 is the other passage that quotes this. Jesus is having the same conversation. And in Matthew 18, we're not going to go there. We'll go there in a few weeks. Jesus continues the same discussion on the church by referring to the authority that he gives to local churches to remove unrepentant, gospel-denying people. So the context in Matthew 16 is certainly building the universal church. And in Matthew 18, it is specifically the local church. So both are in mind, in Jesus' mind. So to confess the gospel is not to become a sheep who wanders alone on a hillside, but to confess the gospel like Peter did is to become part of a distinct local flock owned by the chief shepherd Jesus who shepherds his flock through under-shepherds called pastor-elders. And in our passage, when Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, know that gates are defensive structures, right? They're not offensive weapons. Gates of hell are defensive structures designed to withstand attack. Jesus pictures you and me, the church, on the gospel offensive, breaking down the gates of hell to bring sinners from death to life and from condemnation to salvation through what? Gospel preaching. People repenting, believing the gospel, and thereby adding Christians to gospel-bound churches. Friends, here's a big summary statement. The gospel builds and binds believers together. Now go back to the argument I made at the beginning. Most Christians in the American West and whatever poor theology we export believe a local church is an optional, non-essential add-on to the Christian life. And I'm arguing that Jesus is arguing clearly in Matthew 16 and later in 18 and more that the gospel is intended to build local churches. And not just build local churches, but then bind believers together. So let me issue this challenge. The Bible knows of no such thing as a Christian who is not vitally committed to the life of a local church because Jesus knows of no such thing. Let me say that again. The Bible knows of no such thing as a Christian who is not vitally committed to the life of a local church. The gospel's intention, Jesus' intention with the gospel in your life is to build the local church, which builds the universal church. So to put it in the negative, to not be vitally committed and known by a local church is for you to work against Jesus' purposes of the gospel in your life. Let me say that again, because that's important. To not be vitally committed and known by a local church is to work against Jesus' purposes in the gospel for your life. 
And how do I get that? It's because the gospel builds the church. And so if the church is secondary or optional or preferential or you're not committed or known and you float around, friend, you may have the best of intentions, but that is not Jesus's intention for you in the gospel. So believing the gospel of King Jesus, God in the flesh, living sinlessly in our place, died for the penalty of our sins, rose from the grave, the gospel doesn't just save you, the gospel adds you to the new covenant people, the church. That's why you heard me say last week that the local church is God's plan A for the world and he has no plan B. And he has no substitute. It is the local church and the local church alone where Jesus has promised his blessing to reside. And why does he have no plan B? He doesn't need one. You know why? Because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and our gospel preaching. So he doesn't need. The gospel is effective and will accomplish all that God intends it to accomplish. Not just seeing people go from death to life, but then added to the body of Christ, the local church. So in a similar way, friends, that God marked off the boundaries of Old Testament Israel by putting his people in the land, or the way that he marked off the boundaries of people in the Abrahamic covenant through circumcision, Jesus marks off the boundaries of true belief and puts his people in local sheep pens, a.k.a. local church. And these local churches were embassies of heaven, were kingdom outposts overseen by pastor elders. So Jesus intends the great confession to build local churches, which are bands of gospel professors. The church is not optional for Jesus, and therefore it cannot be optional for you. The church is central and essential to Jesus' gospel plan. Final point four ways to respond to Jesus's gospel. Four ways to respond to this teaching that we're beginning this week and we'll look at in the subsequent weeks. Number one, confess the great confession. If you're a Christian, keep confessing the great confession which, by the way, is one of the things that we do when we take the Lord's Supper together, is you're reconfessing your belief in the great confession and showing that to each other. That's in three weeks from now. Confess the great confession. But if you're here this morning, and I'm, you, all you heard me say was church, 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 I want you to also hear this. If you don't know Jesus, right now he is speaking to you from his word. And by his grace, he has brought you to sit under the preaching of his word so that you would hear that there is a true savior who has atoned for sins and risen from the grave because he is the eternal God, man. He is enthroned right now and he is coming back and he is calling you. He is summoning you as the king to repent and receive his free grace in the gospel, this good news. 
You will never be able to wash away your own sins, but Jesus can. You will never be able to remove all the guilt that you feel, but Jesus can. Because he is the true and right sacrifice. He is the high priest that we need. Friend, renounce your unbelief and confess the gospel. Without Jesus, you have no hope in this world or the next. Only the fearful specter of judgment. So friend, I call you on behalf of Jesus, be reconciled to God. And that's only on his terms, in his way, in his way is Jesus. And receive the gracious gift of salvation and the brother and sisterhood of a family of imperfect people who are helping each other follow Jesus together. That's number one way to respond. Number two, believe the gospel truth that Jesus intends the gospel to build and bind Christians together in local churches. Believe the gospel truth that Jesus intends the gospel to build and bind Christians together in local churches. Jesus' intention for his gospel in the world is to build healthy local gospel assemblies. This is his plan for Flagstaff. This is his plan for America. This is his plan for Sudan and the world. All missions work, therefore, whether here in town or abroad, is to be the singular end of either making or strengthening healthy local churches. If it's not, it's not biblical missions. Because our purposes in the world must be the same as Jesus' purposes in the world. To either plant and build or strengthen healthy churches. That's the end for which we work. And there's a number of means and instruments we use to get there, but that's the end for which we work. So if our end game, so to speak, is not healthy local churches, we have the wrong end game. Number three, personalize this. Embrace Jesus' plan for your life to be vitally known and connected to a local gospel church such as this one. There are other good gospel churches in town. We are aiming to be one of those good gospel churches, faithful to Jesus. I believe that we are, and I am absolutely biased. I think that you can find a good home with us and, un and imperfect people following a perfect Savior together. But what, if you're a college student, since you all sit right there, if you are visiting from out of town, if you've been church shopping, puh, I hate that phrase, if you have been doing that, friend, plant yourself. Embrace Jesus' plan, not my concocted plan, not some ivory tower theological plan. Embrace the Matthew 16 plan for your life to be vitally known and connected to a local gospel church. Why? Because the local church is not an optional add-on to, to the Christian life. The local church is central. You build your life around the local church. The local church is essential and irreplaceable 
to the Christian life. There's no substitute. You will not be a healthy Christian if you are divorced from being married to a local church. To view or treat the local church as secondary or optional is for you to actively, but maybe not intentionally, work against Jesus' gospel purposes in your life, since the gospel builds the church. To replace the church with something else in your life is to ask something else to do what only Jesus designed the local church to do. So go to and attend parachurch ministries on campus. That is not church. You must be vitally connected to a local church and support the ministry, praise God, but don't confuse the two. And don't let misguided leaders make you think that a parachurch ministry, which means by definition alongside the church, to be the church. That's not throwing those ministries under the bus. Don't mishear that. I'm just saying that we need to think Jesus' thoughts after him. The wisdom and wonder of Jesus' gospel plan is for you to be planted in and flourish in a group of imperfect gospel people who seek to be faithful to Jesus together. The question is, will you? And notice I keep coming back to you. I keep using that modifier, gospel, 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 gospel. Why? Because the central feature that ought to attract you to a church is seeing that there are gospel people who know the gospel, who hunger to sit under the gospel preached from all the word of God. That's the central feature. So if a church is doing that, they're being fundamentally faithful to Jesus. And lastly, number four, the fourth way to respond to the passage this morning is this. Preach, speak, pray, and say the gospel. That's not just my job, and it's not just the elder's job. It's our job commissioned by Christ. Peek ahead, Matthew 28. How does Jesus accomplish Matthew 16? The great confession is accomplished through the great commission. They're inseparable. You can't separate the two. Friends, Preach the gospel, speak the gospel, pray the gospel, say the gospel. If Jesus builds the church, blesses the church, and binds the church together with the gospel, speak the gospel and apply it to me and to your brothers and sisters and to your unsaved friends at school and at work and wherever you hang out and recreate, whatever it is, this gospel is meant to be heralded because it's a summons of the king to believe really good news in a very bad news world. And you have that message, not to be hidden, but to be proclaimed from the rooftops. Because guess what? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, which means that your gospel preaching is 100% effective to accomplish what Jesus intends it to accomplish. Praise God. We don't know, someone may reject the gospel 10,000 times, but on 10,001 in God's mysterious providence, John chapter 3 happens, he's born again, he believes the gospel, praise God. Could be a, a cantankerous old-timer guy on his bed, and he repents and believes. Or a rebellious whippersnapper, 
and everything in between. But friends, this text demands a response, and that is belief in what Jesus says his gospel will do with the local church. The question is, will you respond the way Jesus wants you to? Amen? Lord, we look to you this morning to build, bless, and bind us together with the good news that Jesus saves. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that you have yet still people to save in this city. And so, Lord, here we are. Send us. You still have people to save around the world. Here we are, Lord. Send us. Lord, strengthen our brothers and sisters in the field that we support to be faithful to your word and preaching the gospel and strengthening and building healthy local churches. And Lord, let us be found the same. To that end, Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.